0: Episode 55 Fractured Skulls, holy shit, what a week it has been. We have a lot to cover here, specifically one main one, but I have other subtopics that will lead up to the main topic before we get to our our film discussion. How have you been this fine week? Uh,
1: here and there, just, you know, life gets in the way, you never know how to handle it, always throwing you curveballs. That's really it. That's all you can really do is just try to handle it the best of your abilities.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's, you know, take it one step at a time, one day at a time. You know, that's really all we can do.
1: Yeah, virtually. Uh, Let's get into the, the news topics here because, you know, we got a little bit of a newsworthy week this week.
0: Yeah, uh, this is uh, Sunday, August twenty second, two 2001, as, as of this recording, our first news story. We talked about the Resident Evil movies, we're not going to talk about them again. But it seems that like Capcom has made a teasing announcement that they're going to be remastering Resident Evil 4. So I'm assuming when if they do remaster, it probably won't be coming out, I'd say, another two to three years. Um, have you played Resident Evil 4? I think you said you have.
1: Yes, I have, and that game has been re-released God knows how many times. So it's not really that spectacular of an announcement. And I don't even know what exactly they can do to remaster the game. It's still a fresher game than most of the Resident Evil games. And what, what can they do possibly to make it better? I, I guess make the graphics more polished.
0: Yeah, like I said, they're probably going to polish the graphics. Do the same as they did with the other three remasters. I mean, they, they've done very well, especially the second one. So it only makes sense that they're going to gonna keep going, I guess, until the seventh one,
1: I would think. So is this our new thing now, just remastering old games? That's what we do nowadays?
0: Uh, yes, They whether they remaster it or they repackage it or they re-release it. I remember just uh, two years ago, they released a Sega Mega Collection. Well, it has like 50 games from all the old Sega games, and it became a huge hit. Look at the NES uh, Classic, the Mini Nintendo that they sold a few years ago. They sold out. I mean, old old is new again.
1: But those were games that they didn't remaster. They just repackaged them into a new little console as opposed to taking a game that was made. Like, for example, the Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy. All three of those games were made 20-some-odd years ago and they just decided to remake them. And it was cool when it was Crash because I don't know of any other game that was remastered up to that point. Uh, other than maybe the Super Mario All Stars game on the Super Nintendo, those are virtually the first three Mario games remastered. But it's like now every game gets remastered. Spyro's gotten remastered. All the Resident Evil games have gotten remastered. It's it's getting ridiculous with the remasters. Like,
0: what's next? I mean, we did mention that um, you know we're in an era of remakes, reboots, sequels. But you know you can make the same argument for video games. I, I even when you mentioned the Crash Bandicoot games, those games, the remasters, they became a hit and they ended up remastering uh, Crash Team Racing.
1: Yeah, never got to play Crash Team Racing, the remastered version. I played the original many years ago, but I didn't play the remaster of it. I guess because I just thought that nobody could really top Mario Kart and Nickelodeon Kart Races has tried. I haven't got a chance to play that. I know South Park did their own racing game, which is a little bit askew. And, of course, you got Crash Bandicoot. And, uh, I, would,
0: I would say Crash did the best out of Nickelodeon and South Park that came close to touching Mario Kart.
1: And that's still not saying much because Mario Kart kind of dominates the kart racing uh, genre, if you will.
0: Oh, yeah, they, they did everything right with, um, with uh, especially the one on N64. I mean, they did everything right with that game. It's like, how do you make it better? <laughs> you know, that's, that's the big challenge. Besides, you know, just changing characters around. It's like, what what can you do differently that stands out? Maybe do different tracks. That's really all you can do.
1: Well, they did do differently. Double Dash, you had two people on a cart. One person driving and one person doing the uh, the weapons. And if it was characters that are uh, connected together, like, let's say, Donkey Kong and Diddy Kong, they had a special power that they can use. Uh, Mario Kart 7 was just a 3DS port. Mario Kart 8 uh, basically had the hovering wheels, so basically it was kind of like hovering cars, if you will. With new tracks, obviously. Uh, Really, I don't know. uh, New items, like the items always keep switching up, characters keep switching up. I don't know what they could do for the next Mario Kart, but suffice it to say, we're we're going way off track. Yeah, well, it's it's very simple. Remaster,
0: <laughs> remaster the old one.
1: <laughs> well, now like everything's re- being remastered. It's like okay, the ideas I guess just aren't coming together anymore.
0: As I mentioned, old is new, and then I don't I don't see this trend going away anytime soon. As long as people keep buying them, they're gonna keep doing them. And for the most part, the remasters are pretty good. Yeah. My, at least the ones I played.
1: But it makes sense for the first three Resident Evils because they were on PS1 and they had an outdated formula with outdated look. and needed to freshen up for it to survive in today's world. Resident Evil 4, while it did come out in 2004, I still feel kept kept a more modernized look to it and doesn't really need all that much updating. I just don't see it don't see it at all. Maybe graphics? Possible.
0: I, I would think either, either graphics or converting HD to 4K and all that.
1: But All right. Uh, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time was remastered for the 3DS, but that was a welcome remaster because the graphics were way more polished than the N64. The N64 is completely dated. The Water Temple has been completely fixed, although the Water Temple still kind of sucks. But at least in the Water Temple to anybody who didn't play Ocarina at time. The water temple involves the water level inside the temple to be risen or dropped at a certain level. And sometimes you either gotta be floating above the water or you gotta be underneath the water. And Link has a special suit that allows him to breathe underwater, so that's good. But there's a special pair of boots that he wears to put him underwater and you take them off if you want him to float above. Well in the old system if you had to constantly switch so that link would have to flow or be underwater you had to constantly pause the menu and keep flipping through the pause menu to go find the boots and either equip them or not equip them the 3ds kind of fixed that because it had a second screen on and so now you could just press the, the boot button and it was either on or off so it completely deviated that mess so that was so that was welcome Uh, and I guess the Crash Bandicoot series was a welcome remaster because, again, those games were on an outdated platform. But if you were a Crash Bandicoot fan and you were expecting the old gameplay, think again because the gameplay physics are different.
0: But I think it worked for Crash Bandicoot because I don't know when the last time a Bandicoot game has been released prior to the remaster. Um, Almost like a hero's welcome
1: for him. It's, they've released games after that but they were nowhere near nowhere near as successful as the first three games that were oh. released um, it seems like I think it was Wrath of Cortex on the PS2 it's just, that series just kind of went downhill and couldn't pick up it it had the the Sonic Syndrome where after Sonic and Knuckles on the Sega Genesis once Sonic entered the 3D realm Sonic really just couldn't get itself together it just kept one failure after another although i did enjoy sonic heroes i'm not gonna lie i guess i'm one of the few that really enjoyed that game
0: yeah i don't know with crash i don't know that it had anything anything to do with naughty dog selling it because i know naughty dog made those original three they made a few other games too i know they did crash bash ctr crash bash probably being the last really good successful game since that one was different from the other uh, bandicoot games prior but I know with the remasters Naughty Dog had nothing to do with it. I don't think I don't even think they even own rights to the Crash Bandicoot name anymore or the franchise. I think they sold it or whatever. But
1: it could be. It very well could be, cuz as, as we talked about, when a game gets or any kind of franchise gets passed off, it doesn't seem like it has that same aura. We talked about that with Jason Voorhees. Now, once he got pulled out, what was it by Paramount? No, barely any movies have been released, and all of them, with the exception of Jason X, because that movie's a classic, they've all kind of sucked hardballs.
0: That uh, that covers our first story with uh, Resident Evil. Our second story is, unfortunately, we had a death. Uh, most fans may know him from being in Kill Bill, but uh, Sonny Chiba passed away at the age of 82. Uh, I've mentioned his name on this podcast before. He's the original Street Fighter. Most, um, if you're a fan of the martial arts films from the 70s and 80s, Sonny Chiba was a pretty big deal in Japan. He was basically their response to Bruce Lee. He has a black belt in six different styles of martial arts, so this guy's legit. He's an actor. He's done some screenwriting. He's a producer. He's, a, he's been a director. He's done it all. Would you, He wasn't uh, Uma Thurman's teacher, I would say, but he made her this, the famous sword.
1: Yeah, the Hanzo sword. Yes,
0: and I know he was also in one of the Fast and the Furious films, the Tokyo Drift one. So, uh, it sucks, because, uh, you know, he's a legend. And he was very good at what he did. I, I, I've i only seen him in two films, the ones I just mentioned, Kill Bill and um, uh, Fast and Furious. I would love to watch the original Street Fighter movies. The Street
1: Fighter. Yeah, um, I didn't get to see much of his work, but the, he was 80... You said he was... 82. 82. He had a successful career. It's better to have somebody who passed away at 82 and had a successful successful career than someone like, let's say, a James Dean who dies way too fucking young, and then you're wondering what if, or River Phoenix, something like that. Even, even
0: you know, Brandon Lee.
1: Brandon Lee, another one that we've talked about. Um, and I'm sure I'm forgetting others. Um uh, I mean, Paul Walker was in his four was about to be 40, I think, when he passed away. But still, it's horrible when a guy or gal dies at such a young age. Alia being another one. I don't think she did. Did she do any movies? She, uh,
0: she did Romeo Must Die and Queen of the Dam.
1: Yeah. So there you go. She was transcending into Hollywood, and she dies at 22 years old. It's or or um. I'm I'm probably gonna butcher the name. Uh was it Heather O'Rourke, the one that was in Poltergeist, the young girl that said uh, Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh she yes. Was twelve. She was like twelve when she died. Uh mm-hmm. Judith, Percy, who was ten years old, who did one of the voices in Land Before Time. Ten years old, murdered by her own father. That's sick. That's crazy. It's but at least with Sonny Chiba, you've got a plethora of different martial arts movies if you're into that type of genre to look after, like the Street Fighter movies. Um, but yeah, his most recent addition was Kill Bill. And he speaks both English and Japanese in the film, which is kind of kick-ass. And
0: I'm pretty sure he's done countless other films that I've even thinking of in Japan and, you know, in his homeland that uh, we haven't been exposed to. But, you know, but... From what we saw, we were impressed, and I would love to see more of his stuff whenever I, I get the time to check it out, whether it be on any, whether it be on Netflix or whatever streaming series that has his work. So rest in peace to Sonny Chiba. And now we get to our big news story. Um, you know, I try not to cover wrestling too much on here because I know this podcast is catered more towards like horror fans or really just movie fans in general, and I'm pretty sure a very small minority of those people actually watch wrestling. But me, you are wrestling fans, and I I only try to cover if it's if something big happened in wrestling. And, well, something big happened in wrestling.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you gotta keep this in mind. Uh, I would say a good two-thirds of the crew on the Chillin' Chillin' Podcast, or the Just Chillin' Network, I should say, are wrestling fans to a major degree. We all have swimming knowledge, with the, maybe the exception of two of us there's three big returns that came in wrestling the return of Brock Lesnar first time he has been seen since Wrestlemania of last year not this year last year 2020 he was last seen uh losing to Drew McIntyre for the WWE title in Wrestlemania 36 in their Prudential Center Warehouse or no, did I say Prudential Center? No, Performance Center Warehouse. That's what I meant to say. Because obviously that was when COVID hit and they were supposed to do uh, their WrestleMania in Tampa, uh, Raymond James Stadium. But obviously we decided to react to the pandemic by shutting everything down. And really, WWE had no choice but to do it in the performance center because their thought process was well what if things don't go back to normal till November and obviously here we are in August of 2021 and we're uh, who knows where we're going to be I I digress. The point is is that after that match Brock had not been seen since and Brock's been a, an attraction. He's not been a guy that's been around every week. So therefore he pretty much there was no reason to bring him in because for good solid year and a half WWE's been doing all their shows either in the Performance Center or in a thing called the Thunderdome with all the screens around with all the fans and all that. Well, now fans are back. And so, therefore, there's a reason to bring Brock back. And the angle that they've decided to go with is his old manager, Paul Heyman, has been managing Roman Reigns during his hiatus. So now they got to play that angle. Who's Paul Heyman going to side with, Roman or Brock? brock's rocking a ponytail which is kind of weird but wow. it's cool to see brock back because it's been almost two years since we've seen him and they've decided to pair him up against roman and while we've seen that match several fucking times uh it's a different dynamic because roman's the heel this time and brock's the good guy and you've got the dy- dynamic of paul Heyman. before we get to the other two what do you think
0: uh, Brock coming back uh, wasn't really a big surprise. I mean, if there was any place he was going to return, it was going to be for WWE. I didn't see him anywhere else. I don't think uh, Tony Khan would pay the money Brock would have probably wanted to make an appearance. And honestly, I don't really see how that would benefit Tony Khan in the end. I mean, I mean, it'll probably get some eyes, but really that's it. But the whole Brock
1: thing. He would just give Brock a fresh uh, array of opponents to work with. He would have yeah. like uh your kenny olivier's as jim Cornette calls them or twinkle toes mcfinger bang uh who else is on that ross he could face uh, adam page darby and hey, he would have a new set of opponents to work with and a lighter well just as light of a schedule i guess yeah. so there's that we had the return of becky lynch becky the lynch man. yeah the man Becky Lynch had not been seen since May of 2020. Her last appearance was the Raw after Money in the Bank 2020. Uh, Asuka had won Money in the Bank. And to anybody who doesn't know what Money in the Bank is, it's a briefcase that holds a WWE contract to where you can cash in for a shot at the world title or women's title, depending who you are, for a whole year. And in this case, it was different because Asuka... When she won the money in the bank, it wasn't for a contract. It was for the title. The title was in the briefcase. And the reason is the current champion, Becky Lynch, was giving up the title because she was pregnant. This had caused a bit of controversy because, A, she's the top female in the company, and she's getting pregnant right in the middle of what is her biggest run. And luckily, the company's not relying on her financially. And then the other side is basically saying she can do whatever she wants. I'm not gonna get into who's right or who's wrong. The point is, is that in May of 2020, she took a hiatus because she was pregnant. She hadn't been seen in over a year. Well, at SummerSlam, something weird happened. Bianca Belair, the defending SmackDown Women's Champion, was supposed to defend against Sasha Banks. They'd build this for about a month or two. And it was supposed to be the big rematch because they had faced off at WrestleMania with Sasha being the champion and Bianca beating her. Something had happened and Sasha could make it. But they knew this eight days prior and instead of just pulling her from the match, they just kept advertising her. So much so that even when Bianca Bella was in the ring, they played a video package of their match being hyped. Well... Her replacement was Carmella. Carmella came out, did her little thing, and then the man's music hit. She came out to a big monstrous pop. Fans went crazy, she beats up Carmella. Becky says, let's tear the house down, bell rings. She gives uh, Bianca Belair a rock bottom, one, two, three, in 20 seconds. So people were excited to see the man back, but they were not excited to see that she came back in spite of Bianca Belair. So out of all the returns, this one got me the least bit excited. I was not really crazy about Becky Lynch's man gimmick. I think it's very forced. Uh, She hasn't really been that good in my opinion since WrestleMania where she won the title from Ronda Rousey she's been a very forced personality it just hasn't worked for me brother and uh, even with her coming back I just not feeling it I'm not on that train so any thoughts on the man
0: um no I agree with you 100% I I always thought something was missing with Becky I, I mean honestly you know I'm get, I, I'm not taking any credit away for ever getting super over you know great for her. I was there live when um, in her main event of Mania with the three-way. was her, uh, uh, Ronda, and was it uh, Sasha? No, it wasn't Sasha. Uh, uh, Sh- yeah, God, I totally, I totally blinked on Charlotte. And even that three-way match was just underwhelming, which is an underwhelming match to close the show. Now, there was a lot to do with it. One, the match just wasn't as good as it should have been for a WrestleMania main event. And two, the show at that point had, had been going on for like seven hours. And I think Kofi went in the belt, took all the energy away from the crowd. And then everything at that was just kind of the crowd was just kind of like on their hands and on their, you know, sitting in a chair. Just kind of waiting for the show to be over. And plus, you know, the temperature was dropping. It was getting it was pretty cold there.
1: Yep. And that match literally started at midnight in New Jersey time. And the yeah. show was New Jersey. So.
0: Yeah. And the show started, I believe, at seven. Well, if well, you were, if not not counting the pre-show.
1: Yeah. pre-show started at five.
0: Yeah, so <laughs> literally, literally there the whole day, which is ridiculous.
1: Mm-mm. And I remember the day started off nice and hot, and then it got cold, and then it rained as soon as we were leaving. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but I, I was I was back in my hotel by then, so I was fortunate to not experience what you guys went through. But you already told this story.
1: Oh yeah, lucky you.
0: So, um, but with Becky coming back, I mean, whether it be Bianca or any other talent in that position. Having to lose 20 seconds to a returning uh, star—that's not how you're supposed to do it. Why would they do that to Bianca? This—this this made no sense to me. It, it felt like a burial. I mean, you would have—you <laughs> would have thought Bianca said something to someone backstage, and they were pissed
1: off by her, and saying, "This—this—this'll teach her." It—it it would work if Bianca was a heel. Like heels, yeah. is, Because a heel can easily use that as heat to be like, well, I wasn't ready. Like the honky-tonk man when he lost to Warrior in, what was it, 20 seconds? He had the out. I I wasn't scheduled to face him. I was scheduled to face Brutus Beefcake. I, I wasn't ready. He just ran in and attacked me. That's what a heel does. They make excuses. They get the heat. Bianca is supposed to be a good guy and a top good guy at that. And now, like, what does this mean? Is she gonna turn heel? And if she's gonna turn heel, why? Bianca has worked very good as a baby face. It's... I don't know. Either way, I was not excited for the man. And... Even if they would have had a 15-minute match, I really wouldn't have been excited for the man. Because she just doesn't do anything for me.
0: Yeah, she does not... Yeah, as I meant, she does nothing for me neither. Um, Some people were mentioning her title reign has been underwhelming. Or, you know, she's just basically been a girl holding a bow. I mean, look... And people do realize they were letting go a shit ton of talent just over this past year. And they let go a lot of females, too. I mean, honestly, there's really not much for uh, Bianca to work with. Who was she feuding with during her whole reign? You've been watching more than I have.
1: I'm trying to remember who she's faced, to be honest. Holy Christ. Like, her matches have been completely unremarkable. And it's not on her, because she's a very athletic girl.
0: I, I Again, I have no issue with them ta- taking the belt off of her to give it to Becky. But at least have a competitive match.
1: Oh, she's worked with Bailey and she's worked with Carmella. But Bailey has been injured. She yes. just got injured and she's going to probably be out until after WrestleMania.
0: Yeah, she's going to be out for a minute. And Carmella, let's be honest, she's not a strong talent.
1: Well, they don't book her as a strong talent, no. Um, but yeah. Uh... I guess we'll get to the big return.
0: Yeah, but those are the big returns for WWE they had for um, SummerSlam two days later of the rampage. Now, some people think it was a publicity stunt to counter what AEW did. I guess. Could have been.
1: I don't know. I don't really care. AEW, the competition for WWE, was able to acquire CM Punk. CM Punk has been out of wrestling for seven and a half years, almost eight. Uh, I'll try and condense this story. CM Punk is not a prototypical pro wrestler. He's very skinny. He's tall, but he's skinny. He's about 6'2". He's not a guy that you would suspect would be a main event guy. He's not even that athletic. He's very clumsy, but he's a great talker. He, he understands psychology. He understands the art of storytelling in a match. And that's what makes CM Punk so great. So CM Punk got with the company, WWE. And for years, they've kind of not really done much with him. They gave him the world title, but they have always kind of like relegated him to being a pseudo main eventer. Somewhat, they would throw him in there for a little bit and then just have him lose and then just knock him back down until one day he caught this infamous what we call pipe bomb promo where he vented his frustrations of how he was being treated. So, therefore, it got him really popular, kind of similar to Austin when he cut his 316 promo. So, for years behind the scenes, he had been frustrated with the company that he was working for. They weren't really giving him the ball, they gave him the title, but they never made him the guy. Never made him the centerpiece. It was always John Cena. They made the centerpiece. Never giving CM Punk the chance to be that guy. On top of that, Punk has accused the company of misdiagnosing his staph infection. To where, after his very last appearance with WWE, which is at the Royal Rumble 2014, he was taken out of the Royal Rumble near the tail end. Did a whole hour. Apparently got concussed. Uh, was choked, slammed through a table by Kane. And that was the last we had seen of him. The next day, we hear that he had quit, and was in a room with Vince McMahon and Triple H, where he had quit. Come and find out. This is the CM Punk side of things now. A couple months later, or a couple weeks later, he goes to a doctor to see that he had a staph infection that he had reported to the company for the net last three months that he had had, and they basically said, "Nah, we're not going to remove it. Here's a Z pack. A Z pack." That he was being prescribed to that did not solve his issue it actually made him feel worse to the point where there was actually a match with him and dean ambrose on smackdown where you could clearly see he shot himself because that's what antibiotics do they give you diarrhea and so he shot himself and there's literally a shit stain in the middle of the ring anyways so one thing led to another he kept quiet for a bit um Apparently, they sent a FedEx envelope the day of his uh, wedding saying he was fired. And they had lawsuits going back and forth. And around Thanksgiving of that year, 2014, he finally went on podcast to tell his side of the story, which is basically the cl- cliff notes of what I just said. And for years, there had been a bitter battle between the two. Chris Ammon, the doctor he accused of misdiagnosing his staph infection, took him to court to sue him for defamation of character. Eventually that case got thrown out. Uh, CM Punk went into the UFC to try that out. He had two fights. First fight was against Mickey Gale. He lost within two minutes. I knew right then and there that the UFC just wasn't a fit for him. I was called crazy for thinking he should go back to a thing that he hated. I knew he didn't hate wrestling. I knew he hated WWE. Then he had another fight with I can't even remember the guy's name. The fight lasted about three rounds. Put it this way, Dana White had even said the winner of that fight was not going to get a UFC contract, and he never did. He never fought for the UFC again. And on top of that, years after the fight, they pulled the win from him because he failed a drug test that day for marijuana. Why they waited years after taking that win away from him beyond me, but whatever. So his UFC career never panned out. Another show called WWE Backstage was opened up. It was kind of like a seg show for WWE, which CM Punk was a part of. Problem is, is that he was signed by Fox, not by WWE. And he mentioned that there was a bridge building that would need to be made before that he can work with WWE. May never be rebuilt, but whatever. For years, it had always been wondered when would CM Punk come back to wrestling. Because it was always inevitable he would come back, but when? And people would chant his names at the shows. They would chant it when they didn't like something. It was all so bothersome to the fans that CM Punk just never came back to the one thing that they loved him for, which was wrestling. Well, over the weekend, Friday, as of this recording, AEW was able to acquire him. Not just acquire his services, but... To get him to come out to his theme song, Cult Personality, from Living Color. Came out to a Chicago crowd that was very ferocious for him. They love him. He's a cult hero. And he made it clear he is there to wrestle. And his first opponent is going to be Darby Allin. Now, where we go from here, we don't know. Will this be like when Hulk Hogan left AWA to go to WWF and become the world champion? We'll have to see. Will this be like when wcw fired steve austin we'll have to see but punk is back but he's not back with the company that made him sick as he claimed and uh yeah it's a very exciting time because now cm punk is back into wrestling and it seems like he's back into good graces with the fans that seemed like they were going to turn on him
0: the biggest question when it came to cm punk coming back was would be when and where and the only I guess at that time, the possible option would have been WWE since they were the only big game in town. Some people said New Japan. Honestly, I don't see Punk fitting in New Japan. I, don't know, I just don't see that. I, don't know, I just I just don't see it. I just can't picture it in my head. And he can't go to TNA. He can't go to Ring of Honor. He's way too big for those companies. And those companies couldn't even afford him, honestly. Maybe ROH. Because ROH is owned by Sinclair, which is a billion-dollar company. They're, they're, I mean, they have more money than WWE. They're just too cheap to spend and promote ROH. Which is why the company never grew, and it is where it is right now. It's where it's been for, for the past 10 years. And I don't see it ever growing unless there's literally new people in charge. But Then came All In, which is the most successful independent uh, run show of all time. And that basically was the, uh, that gave the birth to AEW. And since AEW is owned by a billion dollar man, Tony Khan, of course he's the only one financially I guess I could give, that could really afford to get Punk. I know in the beginning they tried to get him, but um, I guess things fell through. But at least the bridge wasn't broken. So eventually, I guess over time, they've been talking to him. They, I believe they, were, they even flew out to Chicago to have a meeting with them. And I guess that's where they inked the deal with them. And this Friday Rampage, this past Friday, they were in Chicago. Just the rumor of CM Punk possibly being there sold out the show. And that crowd would not stay quiet. It was really remarkable. It was incredible. And when his music hit, that arena exploded in excitement because they were so happy that CM Punk has made his return to wrestling, even though he didn't wrestle, but he made his first wrestling appearance since uh, the Royal Rumble in seven and a half years. And I will go as far as to say that this was one of the, this was literally the greatest moment AEW has ever done. I think this is one of the biggest returns ever in wrestling. I give this entire segment, even his promo was good. Everything about this was perfect. I wouldn't change anything. To me, this was a 10 out of 10. This was a masterpiece. I give it the perfect score. This was bigger than his Money in a Bank moment. Uh, his entrance in him winning the title. I mean, Money in a Bank has to be like a number two, but this is number one. Um, I put this over any return that has ever happened in wrestling. I put it over wide to uh, Jericho's 99 debut on Raw. Uh th- this this was incredible. I I was just watching it before we started this podcast. Uh just just hearing that crowd chant his name CM Punk, CM Punk. And then the music hit, and then they're still chanting his name. You could barely hear the music. And then of course the show it was showing some of the crowd going excited and then you see the one guy crying. Um which I, which everybody will, I mean he got a mixed reaction from Twitter. I've seen people insult him say oh what a cry baby. But, you know, I always think back to when my father showed me a match with Bruno against Killer Kowalski from, like, the late, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, the late, late 70s. And and when the camera was showing some of the women crying because Bruno was getting beat up by Killer Kowalski to the point one of them tried to re- even run to the ring. I mean, she got stopped by the by the police. But she was crying because she just didn't want to see Bruno get beat up by Kowalski. And, I, and myself, I'm sitting I so my God, is that? This was a long time ago. I'm sitting myself, like, my. Was that, was that how wrestling used to be? Like, these women, these grown women would cry because their their favorite was getting beat up. And it's been such a long time since we've ever seen that passion out of a wrestling fan. We've seen, you know, tears crying over someone, you know, whether someone's getting beat up or someone's making a triumphant return and seeing that guy crying reminded me of that.
1: I, I can give you an example. Look at when... Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth Reunited at WrestleMania 7 and how many people were crying there. You hear people saying, oh my god, they're a bunch of pusses. It was both men and women crying. It was a big moment. Uh, I I probably wouldn't have cried because I'm I'm a hardened criminal, but two things. Would you say this was better than Edge's return from last year's Royal Rumble? Yes. Uh, That's remarkable because Edge was out for about nine years up to that point with a neck injury that was said to have ended his career. And I'm probably certain you didn't see this, but would you say this was bigger than Kobashi's return to wrestling after his cancer scare? I didn't see I can't give you an answer. Because Kenta Kobashi, he's more notable in Japan. Yeah. A form of cancer around 2006, 2007-ish? I can't remember. And, um... He had to leave wrestling to go fight for his life, even more so than Roman Reigns when he had leukemia. Um, Kobashi ended up beating it. He put it in remission. And when he came back, keep in mind, the Japanese crowd is different than Americans. They usually stay quiet in the beginning of a match and just observe. They don't really get into it until the climax. When Kobashi was doing his first match since coming back from cancer, they were like on their feet for Kobashi. I don't think he ended up winning the match, but just the fact that the crowd was into it from beginning to end, knowing that Kobashi was back. I'd have to rewatch it because it's been so long, but I remember that being a big deal. I think what helped this is that CM Punk is such a cult hero in Chicago that if you do a show in Chicago, he is going to be a hero amongst all heroes. Kind of similar to Bret Hart in Canada. You put Bret Hart in fucking Canada, those Canadians are gonna go nuts for Bret Hart. You cannot get anybody to cheer uh, the opposing opponent that's facing Bret Hart. You can't get those crowd, that crowd to cheer them over Bret Hart. It's just impossible. Because Bret Hart's the, the, the Canadian hero. Go look at Canadian Stampede when Bret Hart is being cheered. Would you say this was bigger than Canadian Stampede? Oh god. Oh man.
0: I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna ask me, was this bigger? I I really have to sit and think about this, but just off the top of my head, I would say yes, because this crowd, even after Punk finished his promo, they were still chanting his name throughout that entire
1: show. It's like no one else on that card on Rampage stood a chance. Look, to be fair, I am comparing apples and oranges. Because CM Punk had not been seen in wrestling in like seven and a half years. So this was like a welcome back type moment. Whereas the Canadian Stampede, it was just a big show where the Heart Foundation was facing. What was it? Steve Austin, Goldust, Ken Shamrock, and Legion of Doom. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the, that is apples and oranges. So I am being a little unfair. Suffice to say, it was a great moment. No doubt about it. I've, I've liked Punk as a performer. I don't know the guy as a person. He's said and done stuff from his own words and from other people's words that I find a little questionable. No denying that dude had a huge impact in our business. And it showed this weekend because that crowd was so excited to see him. And the most underrated part of that whole promo... Wasn't even him talking about, you know, him returning. To me, it was him calling out Darby Allen, And Darby Allen standing out with Sting. And they're just staring off into what's going to be their biggest challenge yet. And I I sit there and I think many people are not going to know what I'm talking about. But for all your wrestling fans, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about. I cannot wait for the day that CM Punk... As a promo face-off with fucking MJF. I cannot wait for that. That is going to be some of the best shit. That is going to be, as Vince McMahon would say, such good shit.
0: I I would think this upcoming Dynamite, him and Darby Allin, are going to have a face-to-face. And you know, since Darby's managed by Sting, you know Punk's going to have a face-to-face moment with Sting as well. And I think the crowd is going to lose their mind. Sting and CM Punk in the same ring. It's unimaginable. It's it's incredible. It's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, I think this is the most buzz wrestling has gotten in a long time. I say prior to this, probably the most buzz they've gotten, I would say, was all in.
1: And probably the only thing that'll match it is the eventual, if it does happen, debut in AEW of Daniel Bryan.
0: I mean, I don't think it's gonna top it, but it's gonna come close.
1: It would only top it if it happens in Aberdeen. It would have to happen in Washington, the state of Washington. No, they could do it in New York. Mm, I mean, they could, but Daniel Bryan would get a bigger reaction in Washington, his the state.
0: Mm, I say New York because, you know, the New York crowd has known, has followed Dragon since, what, his, his ROH days in the early to mid-2000s?
1: Yeah. But keep in mind, if you remember that Raw in late 2013, how the fans basically hijacked that championship ceremony because they were in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So, I would think they would do the same thing. Kind of similar to how Chicago basically overtook this show. They knew it was a CM Punk show. It's, and that's incredible.
0: And I guess that's going to kind of cover our news topics. And before we get to our film discussion, i got to bring up Patreon. Patreon.com slash Just Tell Them for $1. $1! You get full access to this episode along with the other great past episodes. You can follow uh, Just Chillin' Network. We're on Instagram at Just Chillin' Network. We're on Twitter at Just Chillin' Net. Find us on Facebook at Just Chillin' Network. You can follow my partner at Monoxide YouTube on Twitter, at Owen underscore heart underscore guy on Instagram. I'm on Instagram and Twitter as well as Silent Poison. And with that said, we're going to get today's film discussion. 1997's The Devil's Advocate. Darren keanu reeves charlie Steron, jeffrey jones and of course the great al Pacino. it was directed by taylor hackford the screenplay was done by jonathan lemkin tony gilroy and i believe they have another screenwriter credit here but it's written by three guys it's based on the book that was advocated by andrew Ninerman. it has a budget of 57 million and his box office it grossed 153 million dollars It's a long film. It's over two hours. It was distributed by Warner Brothers. So, and this film came out, I believe, a week after Titanic uh, made its theatrical uh, release. So it did have some competition at the box office, but overall, it worked out in the end. They made profit. So this film became a hit. So they did all right.
1: They did all right having to compete with fucking Titanic.
0: Yeah. um, This was a film that... um, Obviously, we, we always throw film titles at each other for us to review. And you mentioned uh, Devil's Advocate. So, uh, uh, when, did the, when was the first time you saw this movie?
1: This was the first time.
0: Oh, this was the first time.
1: Yeah, this very first time. Uh, I saw something about it. I can't remember if I saw a meme about it. It had something to do with Keanu Reeves or uh, Al Pacino. But for some reason, just the plot of, uh, in and it of itself intrigued me. And I could safely say I wasn't disappointed. I really enjoyed this film. It was a very solid film. I would even go as far as to say that it's one of Keanu's better films. I haven't yeah. seen, the John, I have not seen the John Wick films. I have seen The Matrix. The Matrix is a good movie. It's a solid movie. It's very, um, how do you say, culturally impactful, but I would say this film was better, and mainly because it took a trope that I normally don't like and was able to make it to where it made sense. I'll get to that. But the basic gist of this film is that Keanu Reeves plays a lawyer who is defending a a defendant who's being accused of raping or sexually assaulting a 15-year-old girl. And while he's listening to her testimony, her going over what happened, he turns and sees his, his client, the person he's supposed to defend, and this guy has his hand down his pants and is clearly playing with himself. He's jerking off. And he is so flabbergasted, understanding that his client is guilty. He walks out and goes to the bathroom and tries to rationalize with himself, is this even worth it? Because I think up to this point, he had never lost a case. He has been a very good defender. And now, knowing full well that his client is guilty, he's got to actually like, have this thought to himself, do I continue to defend this guy, knowing that I know that he's guilty?
0: That's that's the thing about being a lawyer, because whether you, if you believe your client or not, I mean, if you were to just walk out for whatever reason, there's a chance you could lose your law your license to practice law, and from you know without that, you're out of a job. Right.
1: Well, the film continues with him deciding that he's going to go back into the. Uh, the room and continue defending his client, to which he raises a good, reasonable doubt by insinuating that the plaintiff had motive to make it up by saying that she had a vendetta against the defendant. And sure enough, he was able to get the not guilty verdict. And the rest of the film just basically surrounds Al Pacino's character, where he discovers this guy, Keanu Reeves' character, and he wants him in his law firm. The problem is is that Keanu Reeves' character is located in Gainesville, Florida, and he wants to send him to New York with him and his wife, who's played by Charlize Theron. Hope I'm saying that name right. Um, And they go to New York, and it's at this point that Him defending all these clients who are clearly guilty. Oh, by the way, Keanu's character's name is Kevin Lomax. His wife, Charlie Stearon, is Marianne Lomax, and Al Pacino plays a character by the name of John Milton. So John Milton wants Kevin Lomax to be a part of his law firm. But they gotta go to New York, and while they're there, Marianne is seeing weird images, like devilish images. And it's driving her fucking crazy. So that's the premise of the film.
0: I think when it comes to horror films, I think this is the closest Pacino's ever came to doing a horror movie. He's done a lot of thrillers. He's done his thrillers here, and I know he did that film Insomnia with him and Robert Williams, which was directed by Christopher Nolan. But, um, but this was the closest he ever came, I would say, to doing a horror movie in his career. And some people would say this is a horror movie. Um, there, there's definitely an argument to be made um, and Bacino, of course, I mean, the guy can do no wrong. He's fucking Al Pacino. And it's revealed at the end that um, he's the devil. He's Satan. He's obviously dis- disguised as his a successful lawyer named John Milton.
1: Not only is he the devil, but he's the father of Kevin Lomax.
0: Which was not in the book. The whole right. book. The whole father element was just was not in the book i think the book it was just that he was just he was just the devil and he wanted kiana because of his resume him defending all these bad people would of course the devil's bad he, It's almost like he he has like a new uh, demon representative wanting him to work for him but of mm-hmm. course that's you know throughout the whole film he slowly realized you know this law firm is too good to be true they have their secrets his wife is seeing all these uh weird imagery there's a, there's a lot of themes here with the whole heaven and hell aspect of it. And slowly and surely, um, the film started off with Keanu Reeves wearing a white suit when he was defending that um that sexual predator. And, was, and this is one of the themes in the movie. And throughout the whole film, you notice as Keanu Reeves, his suits were slowly like fading to black. And by the time he had his big final confrontation with Al Pacino, his suit is completely black. Almost as like a, a foreshadowing that he's like getting him to turn to the dark side. I thought that was a nice touch there from the director.
1: The the movie in and of itself is all about vanity. It's all about narcissism. That's really the whole theme of the film. It's narcissism. So the reason she's seeing all these things is because obviously uh, Lomax is caving into his narcissism which is one of the seven deadly sins that the devil, John Milton, is trying to expose out of Lomax. And the big case that he's doing is that he's defending a defendant who is accused of murdering his whole family. And the one thing that he does, which is pretty clever, by the way, to defend him is he tries to say that Yes, I don't like my client at all because he commits uh, infidelity. But there's a difference between not liking somebody and thinking somebody's a killer. And he tries to explain to the defendant, who's real pissed off, like, "Why are you doing this to me?" He said, "The more unlikable you are, the more you're innocent you're going to be, because the more we drill into the people's heads that you were cheating on your wife, the more." people are going to realize that you were not there to commit the crime you were with your mistress the thing is what gets him to understand that he possibly did this was that he asked the mistress all these different questions and one question he asked her was was he uh did he still have foreskin to which she couldn't answer if she didn't know because it never happened So now, once again, he's got to defend this guy. And I think he ends up successful. But it starts to drive him and his wife up the wall to where Charlie Steeron ends up killing herself, Marianne. And she does it in one of the most sick way possible. She locks herself in a freaking room and slices her own throat with glass. Just kind of crazy. It's yeah, it's
0: it's it's a dark film,
1: <laughs> especially since Charlie Steeron just starts losing her mind constantly. Like you can clearly tell she's dipping into insanity. Yeah, her, her slow descent into madness, which eventually leads to her suicide. Most of the film does not have a lot of horror elements other than uh, some of the faces that Charlie Steeron sees Marianne does. Uh, we'll look at her one second and be normal, and then the next minute they look all evil and devilish. That's really it. But eventually you come to realize, once Lomax is in the room with John Milton, once he starts to realize what's going on, that's when John Milton reveals that yes, the only reason he's been undefeated in his route to becoming the best lawyer it's because he's been watching over him. He's prevented him from failing. Yeah. Well, here's the key thing. There have been several occasions where the devil, John Milton, has given Lomax the opportunity to be good, to give up this case. This case where the big case where his client possibly murdered his family. He said, go home to your wife. I'll give it to somebody else. And he said, no, I got to do this. So... The devil is playing games with him. It was 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 like an eagle thing with uh, Keanu's character. Exposing the vanity within him. Yes. But now John Milton has one final task. One of the characters that he uh, has, it's one of his assistants, reveals that this person was the half-sister of John Lomax. So he basically says that they have to have sex so that they can create a demon child. So that they could take over the world and and, and continue this uh, this legacy on. And then Lomax hits him with a swerve. He fucking shoots himself in the head and kills himself. To which the devil then gets all wrapped up in fire, blah, 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 blah. And then they did something that I was like, under normal circumstances, I don't like. So, remember when I hated Human Centipede 2? And how that ended where the last scene is... The guy who did all of the centipede bullshit and all that... And all said and done... It's revealed that it was all in his head the whole time. Yeah. They did sort of the same thing here. It goes right back into the bathroom... Where Keanu Reeves, John Lomax's character... Is debating, should I defend this guy or not? He comes back into the courtroom... And decides... Nah, I'm not going to defend this guy. I'm I'm, I'm just going to drop out. And everybody starts going nuts. To which he starts hugging his wife, who's no longer dead from suicide. She's back to her old self. And yeah, they're all back in Gainesville. Exactly. And they're about to leave. And this guy is like saying he wants to put him in the newspaper because this is a big deal because he stood up for what was right. Blah, blah, blah. And at first he turns it down. But then the guy just keeps pushing and pushing and eventually he caves in, giving into to his vanity, to which after Lomax leaves, that news reporter turns into John Milton and says, vanity is his favorite sin, his favorite seven deadly sin. And that's how the film ends. It's, it's, a, it's basically a symbolism for vanity. Yes. I kind of like the way they did it because it showed the guilty conscience Kicking within John Lomax, that he has to defend this guy, but meanwhile, he's still human and gives in to his vanity. The symbol, of vanity.
0: I've seen this director do other movies. I I think probably his biggest claim to fame would probably be the film Ray with uh, Jamie Foxx He directed an underrated gangster film. I still talk about every now and then. Blood In Blood Out, which came out I believe a couple years prior to this film. This director's had his hits. Um, I think '90s wise uh al pacino what big film uh, uh, this is probably one of his best movies in the 90s i'd say outside of carlito's way or even dick tracy i always liked that movie keanu reeves look let me say this scent of a woman scent of a woman yes of course i knew i was i was forgetting one yeah it's probably his biggest claim to fame at least of the 90s um keanu reeves uh this was obviously he was really building a reputation for himself at this point now, he, I know he had Speed just a few years prior to this, which was a huge hit for him. Um, here, he was—I never thought Keanu Reeves was a good actor. But that's irrelevant because he kind of has, like, that Brandon Fraser lore to him where people like him as a person to the point whether he's good or bad as an actor is irrelevant. You just like watching him. There's something about him that people like because they like him as a person. And that's what kiana has and because in this film did he have like a southern accent in the beginning and i don't know if he quietly dropped it as the movie went on
1: well you figure he's living in new york
0: yeah i mean i mean charlie's i don't think she dropped her southern accent i think she she ended out the whole movie
1: well because she was losing her fucking mind whereas he was succumbing to the new york lifestyle which she wasn't
0: okay you can make that argument that's fair
1: And also keep in mind, the film kind of alludes to the fact that everything that's going on is something that he's imagining. Mm Mm-hmm. It never really happened, in a way.
0: Yeah. Which
1: why, like, usually that's a trope that I don't like. But this film kind of did it right. Because it gave you the idea of the symbolism of vanity or a guilty conscience, in a way. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought it was really well done. And plus, you had Al Pacino playing... Al Pacino is great. He sounds different from his Godfather and uh, Scarface voice. He just sounds way raspier here. But this is a
0: good story of good and evil. It,
1: it, yeah, it's the whole movie is symbolism in a way, and it's really well done. I mean, sometimes you can argue it's not super, like a horror film in a way, kind of similar to Carrie because if you watch like the first hour and a half of Carrie, you wonder to yourself, is this really horror? It's not until she actually like snaps and starts using her psychic abilities and just destroy everything. The subtle horror elements that happen in this film are very subtle. Um, there is one part where Charlie Sturron's character, Mary sees a baby in the new apartment complex that they're in And the baby is holding what seems to be her completely destroyed ovaries. Which was a symbolism for she can't have babies. Because her ovaries are completely shot. There's some sick elements in this film that are really well done, in my opinion. But it's just, it's all about symbolism. It's not about, like... There's a haunted house, and it's haunted because some family died there. Now they're scaring away anybody who lives there, type of deal. Now it's, this is more about the symbolism of guilty conscience and vanity.
0: And you have a, a good, strong supporting cast. You got Jeffrey Jones, who's kind of like the senior partner for um, uh, John Milton's firm, who kind of who's basically envious of Keanu Reeves. Because he feels, I guess, he feels that his job, his position in the firm is being threatened by him. Envy, seven deadly sin. Yep. I got Connie Nelson also, who's like kind of like the hot uh, Italian uh, colleague for lust. the firm. Lust. Yep, lust. And it, again, <laughs> it's, it's uh, all the seven deadly sins are being touched upon here in this movie. And I believe this was Charlie Sterron's first big, um, her first big role because this was this came out ninety seven. Yeah, this was like her breakthrough as well yeah and, and I thought she and she was good here too
1: you say greed because obviously he had greed he, he was too greedy for his own good uh john lomax because he wanted this he really wanted this case he was so greedy that he couldn't put his feelings for this case aside to take care of his wife so there was greed involved as well so yeah it really does touch up on all the deadly sins even though the guy john lomax is not evil he's far from it and he shows it at the very tail end of the film obviously when he kills himself before he allows the devil to go ahead and uh complete his plan by creating a uh a demon baby
0: i know it's bounced around on netflix and hbo max throughout the months i don't know which i don't
1: know what i think this movie's currently on hbo max feels i want to check it out yeah it's it was a film that really intrigued me and captured my interest and it never lost it so i do appreciate this film it's it's very very good um even just as a standalone film not even just horror in and of itself it's a very good film in all in the symbolism really works it took a concept i don't particularly care for and made it work because i don't care for uh, scenarios where everything that we just watched never happened because then to me it's like well then why did I just waste an hour and a half's time over nothing like one movie that's revered that kind of does that concept but they blatantly tell you that they're erasing everything that has just happened was uh, <clears throat> it's not a horror film it's called uh Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind with Jim Carrey and uh, uh, Kate Winslet. Mm -hmm. Whole movie centered around the fact that Jim Carrey is in a relationship with Kate Winslet's character. And somewhere she just breaks up with him and erases her memory of everything involving them using this future technology device. And the whole entire movie is centered around Jim Carrey erasing all of his memories with her. It's quite interesting, but... Here, it's like they took a concept that I don't like and and did well with it because it's trying to teach you the the importance of guilty conscience and vanity and all the seven deadly sins and what they can do to you, even Mm -hmm. though in a very exaggerated form. Yeah, this movie didn't hide the fact that Pacino was
0: like the devil. I I, I don't think that was supposed to be the big reveal in the end. The big reveal was supposed to be that he's his son. Mm Mm-hmm. This movie gave you hints that he's basically the the Prince of Darkness without actually saying he's the devil, he's Satan, of course, until the very uh, end of the climax scene. I liked a lot of the set pieces in this movie, too, because it shows you, you know, that they're all rich, they're all wealthy, but at the same time, you kind of, you look at all the rooms they're in, and it's always dark. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's beautifully dark, but it's like, god damn.
1: I mean, put a smiley face in the corner or something. Dark red, red tint, everything. Well, it makes sense because devil, you know, devil is always associated with fire, which is red or orange, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, orange, black colors. Yeah, yeah. It was a very uh, dark film, but uh, as I said, other than like maybe a few subtle things, most of the film does not have a lot of horror elements. It has more like drama build-up interesting so it some people i don't know would you could what does the audience think do you consider this a horror film or not i would consider some of it horror definitely i mean if we're going to call carrie a horror film might as well call this one one
0: it definitely has its it has its elements it has its horror it has its thriller it has its drama and it balances everything out pretty damn well without it being yeah without it being distracting
1: exactly and You have a good enough cast to keep you interested throughout the whole entire ride. Because everybody, in my opinion, did well. I don't think there was one person that dragged the film down at all.
0: Yeah, I would, I think, balancing-wise, I would say this is kind of like in the same vein as like a Rosemary's Baby. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Uh,
1: Years and years and years and years and years ago, probably 99, 2000 maybe. I mean, it's it's. I guess the ending is very similar. That they're all
0: basically Satan worshippers, mm-hmm. and you know, with the devil baby and
1: yeah. And I obviously didn't read the book for Devil's Advocate, so I don't know like what they changed and what was kept the same.
0: But um, you know, I don't really see a lot of people talk about this movie, whether it be for a Keanu Reeves film
1: or even for a Pacino movie. I don't. I don't hear people ever bring up like Devil's Advocate. And then, like, look, Al Pacino was, like you said, in Scarface and The Godfather. Those are like the classic of all classic movies. And then you got Keanu Reeves, who was in The Matrix. He was in John Wick. He was in Bill and Ted. He's had more iconic roles. This film was like a standalone film in and of itself. So, and then, of course, Charlie Theron would go do other movies like Monster, where she plays Alien Warnos. Warnos uh, She would play the main villain in, uh, what was it? Snow White, the Snow White movie that involved her and Kristen Stewart, I forget which one. Um, but yeah, th- it's a film that came out back in 1997 and it probably was hyped for the times. As you said, it made a good money in the box office, but it just didn't have long-staying power.
0: Mm-hmm. Obviously, you had Titanic to compete against in the theater, so I didn't really really stand a chance.
1: Think of it like this, and and keep in mind, I'm not picking on anybody, I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but did any of you know that Farrah Fawcett died? If any of you answered that question with no, Mm -hmm. I'll tell you you probably didn't know this. You didn't know this because she died literally hours before it was announced that Michael Jackson died. Which sucks. sucks. Talk about worse timing. Yeah. She died, and I remember hours later, because they announced her death. She had breast cancer, I think. And then hours later, once Michael Jackson's death was announced, that was it. Nobody could have given two flying fucks about Farrah Fawcett. It was all about Michael Jackson for, like, the next few weeks, to the point where... I know I was out of work that day for whatever reason. I think I was sick or I just stayed home or whatever. I I can't even remember what I was doing. But I watched the funeral at home and they freaking, it was like a big deal. You had all people speaking about Michael Jackson giving their eulogies. It was a huge, 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 huge deal. So I think Devil's Advocate's issue was that it came out literally around the time that the biggest box office movie at that point uh, Titanic came out. It's like any film that came out in 1993 that was of quality probably got shafted because of Jurassic Park. Just mm. is what it is. So yeah, unfortunately, it it has that stigma attached to it that it just happened to come around the same time that the biggest box office film up to that point it, it got beat out. Unfortunately, I uh, I think really we covered everything we wanted
0: to say. Um, it's definitely an underrated movie. I would recommend it. I think it's definitely one of the...
1: Uh, hidden gems?
0: A hidden gem. Yeah, I guess that's the best way to put it. It's a de- it's a hidden gem for both Pacino and Keanu Reeves. Either fans of those two actors to watch this movie, check it out. I give this film, if I had to rate it, plus 8.5. Possibly a 9 out of 10.
1: i give it an 8.5. i give it two solid thumbs up. All right. It was a good film. It, it, see, here's the thing. This was not a film that had a lot to pick apart. So most of you are probably listening to this review and being like, Travis Steve, where, where, where's all the, the, the craziness? There's not a lot of craziness to rip apart here. We could have talked about how hokey some of the stuff this would do was in 1997, first off. Of the film wasn't bad. It's not like... like Lords of Salem or anything like that, where you're going to see a lot of misery come out of us, or you're not going to see any greatness like *Lamageddon*. (laughs) a great film. It was just, there's not much to say other than that was the plot. Here's the symbolism. Here's what it tried to teach you. And that was that. It's, It's not, there's not a lot to say, but at least we left happy. As opposed to a movie like, let's say, the remake of Friday the 13th, where we literally had nothing to say about it. It was bad, but we didn't have anything bad or good to say about it.
0: Yeah, we left happy for a film that doesn't, that rarely gets talked about. And we may see it on TV occasionally here and there,
1: whether it be on TNT or the one of the movie channels or whatever. Mm-hmm. I would definitely watch this again, for sure. Not an issue. Yeah, it's it's not a predictable movie because you really don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah, you're on the edge of your seat. You want to know what's going on, and it's very easy to follow. At least it was easy to follow for me. Let me let me specify that. Yeah, that's why I figure, you know, maybe
0: you give it like a second watch until you'll probably pick up on more things than you may have missed the first time. For some people. Definitely check out Devil's Advocate, as I mentioned. It's probably on HBO Max, I believe, right now. If not, it'll probably be on Netflix. They usually trade back and forth every other month with movies. So definitely um, it's worth the time. Check it out, Devil's Advocate. It's a it's a long movie. It's a little over two hours, 144 minutes. So, But the ending is worth it.
1: Yeah, it's two and a half hours. And unlike with *Midsummer*, which was also about the same time, it didn't feel like it was dragging and it didn't feel boring and in certain parts and every character felt somewhat relatable in some sense whether you love them or you hate them
0: and that's gonna do it for episode 55 of fractured skulls as i mentioned be sure to uh, check us out on patreon get all our great past episodes for one dollar check out the devil's advocate from monoxide i'm terminator travis happy cm punk day vanity my favorite sin.